0: If you'll take your Bibles and open to Galatians chapter 2, please. Galatians chapter 2. Going over quickly, Paul's remarks in chapter 1. We had his introductory remarks. We had his statement of concern to the Galatians, saying that he was amazed that they had so quickly deserted him who called them. We had a brief history showing the source of his authority and his apostolic commissioning. And then we come into chapter 2 of Galatians, and we see that Paul's going to give a little more history, and he's going to use the history to bring them to a point of uh, concern that he has for them. So beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2, if you'll read with me, I'm going to read through the second chapter. So just read with me, if you will. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus also along. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them even... For even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing we also were eager to do. The very thing, I'm sorry, the very thing I was also eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all... If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified." But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In the second chapter of Galatians, Paul starts with the narration of the trip that he and Barnabas and Titus take to Jerusalem. And your Bible may say the Council of Jerusalem in the subtitle, which is not part of the text in the Greek. It may say the Council of Jerusalem, but it's not likely that this is the Jerusalem Council journey of Acts 15. It's not likely that this is what it's talking about. There are some marked differences. Uh, The Acts 15 Council was very public. Paul says that he went up in private here in Galatians. Uh, the Acts 15 passage was not in response to a prophecy. In Galatians, we have a response to a prophecy as being part of the reason that Paul goes up. In Acts 15, at the council itself, Peter appears to be the champion of freedom in Christ at the Jerusalem council. And at that council, you would think, with all of the pressures that were going on concerning circumcision, that's not the place where Peter would falter if it were before the time he went to the Galatians. The directives weren't the same. Of course, we had the directives of the council in Acts 15 to the Gentiles, but here all they tell Paul is remember the poor. So it's likely that it was a separate journey that they made to Jerusalem. Paul intends to go to them and submit the content of the gospel he preaches and he wants to submit it to the Jerusalem leaders during this trip and specifically the content of the gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles. And it's not because there's a separate gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles. You have to remember that the Gentiles had only newly been included in hearing the gospel and being the people of God. And so Paul wanted to go and show the leaders tell the leaders what he preached. And he met with them privately. Apparently, he does this so that if there was any disagreement or if at any point he was proven wrong, that there would be less scandal to it. But he says that there was nothing that they had to correct him over. And Titus comes along on this trip. And Titus is interesting as someone to accompany Paul at this point because Titus is the example of Paul's ministry. Here he is, a Greek convert, and Paul says that while they were in Jerusalem, Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised there, even though there was a lot of pressure. Apparently there were a group of people who had infiltrated the church and the meetings there in in Jerusalem and who were trying to pressure them. But Paul says they they didn't even yield for one hour because they did not want the truth of the gospel to be lost. And so the pillars, that is, James and Peter and John uh, all testified to Paul that they concurred with his message and that they recognized him as the apostle to the Gentiles and they saw how God had worked through him and at the end they gave he and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. Now, after Paul gives this account, he goes on into the narrative about Peter's trip to Antioch. And it was, uh, it's the coming down to Antioch. And for us, it's a little unusual. Every time I read this, it's a little unusual in my mind because Jerusalem is south of Antioch. And I always think of down as going south. I guess because we look at maps, and when you look at the map, the north is to the top, and everything south is down. So I think of Bedford as "down from Bloomington." But in fact, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always referred to as being up because it's on a hill, because it's higher in elevation. So they came down from Antioch. They came down from I'm sorry, from Jerusalem. To Antioch, Peter visits with the disciples, the new disciples in Antioch. And as Peter came, he would sit down and eat with the Gentiles. He wasn't afraid to eat with them. Now, this is very important because up until that time in Peter's life and in the life of most Jews, to eat with the Gentiles was uh, something you did not do, there were dietary laws surrounding Judaism that made it impossible for you to sit down to a meal with some Gentiles. But if you remember in Acts 10, Peter had been specifically uh, given a revelation by God that he was supposed to go and give the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles, and this was in the case of the Cornelius. And if you remember, in the vision that Peter received, the sheet come down out of heaven, and it had all these animals on it. And Peter, in his vision, recognized the animals as animals that were unclean for who to eat? For the Jews to eat. So he saw those animals on the sheet, and as the, animal, as the sheet opened up and there were all the unclean animals, he heard the voice of the Lord, and the Lord said, Go, Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, No, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the sheet goes up in the air and then it comes back down and the same thing happens again and up in the air and down again. And the Lord says, what I have made clean is clean. And so God was preparing Peter to go to the Gentiles and he was setting it up for him to go to them and to preach the gospel to them because Peter would have offense. And at the moment the sheet went up the last time and God spoke his word to Peter about what he pronounced as being clean is clean, there was a knock at the door and you remember it was the uh, the group that had come from Cornelius, Peter went down received them, ended up going to Cornelius' house. And what does he say to, to Cornelius as he's there with Cornelius? He says, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And so Peter comes to Antioch. This was after all this had happened. He comes to Antioch and he's with Gentiles and he's eating with them. He's doing well. And then some Jewish believers come down from Jerusalem again, from James. Now James, we know, was one of the pillars, perhaps the, the chief leader amongst, among the Jerusalem church. So these men perhaps were of great reputation and importance. I don't know. It's funny how we act with people who are of what we perceive to be great reputation or importance. I remember I was working in a bookstore in Cincinnati Uh, 17 years ago. And it was a Christian bookstore, and I sold Bibles and reference books. And one day, a little crowd of people came walking in. And I recognized the person at the front of the crowd, a man, I recognized him because I had seen him on religious television before. And as I watched the crowd come in, I saw this little knot of people who were just kind of, you know, following him around. You've seen people do this maybe with athletes, professional athletes or something. Well, they were following him around and you could tell that they were linking some great importance to him. Now, if you wanted to see this guy, you could go to his website. I went to his website this week to, uh, to, re- to remind myself of who it was that I had seen. And there's a big picture of him on the website and there's a big, um, big bold words that say, experience the power. And then underneath him it says, click here. <laughs> and if you think about it, that just about describes evangel- uh, evangelicalism today in many ways. Uh, it's, it's a sad statement. But as these people came into the store and, and he was walking through the store, one of the women was following behind and she came by my counter and she said, that's right, that's him. That's right. That's Reverend so-and-so. I'll tell you his name. That's right, that's him. And I thought, "Whoo." <laughs> Perhaps these men from James were of some special reputation or status. It's obvious that they felt superior to the gentile believers because they because they held themselves apart from them. And in this process they also drew Peter away in their hypocrisy. And they drew Barnabas away in their hypocrisy. I mean, think about your old high school cafeteria. And you had the little knot of people, you know, that would set off in the corner. And I don't know, every generation has a different name. I was thinking through some of the names from my brothers in my time in school. The coo- The people who were keen or cool or Joe or hip or happening or sweet or groovy. You know, they had their little table off to themselves, whatever they called themselves, whatever you called yourself at that time, sitting at the appropriate table, talking to the crowd that they talked to. Here you have Peter and the Jews having their private luncheon, but Paul wasn't having any of it. Why not? Well, there was a lot more at stake with this private luncheon than who's going to be homecoming king. It was a bigger issue, and Paul knew it. And Paul stood up and he rebuked Peter in front of them all. He said, I rebuked him in front of everyone. And this is a good passage for those of you who would show that the message of the gospel is not to be in word only. These words that Paul says to Peter. Paul saw that they were not straightforward about what? What did he say? I saw that they were not straightforward about the gospel just because they were eating off to a table by themselves. They weren't straightforward about the gospel. Peter was a living example of the gospel until those guys came from James, until the guys came from Jerusalem. And then he became the poster child for another gospel, a different gospel altogether. So Paul says to him, How is it, Peter, that you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile? When you feel it's safe to. And not like a Jew. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, how was Peter compelling Gentiles to live like Jews here? He wasn't telling them to be circumcised. But I think uh, it's clear that this little knot of people sitting at their own table, they were playing the envy game. Galatians 4.17 says, They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. And that's how it was, if you remember, back in high school when people were sitting at those tables. Everybody wanted to sit at the table, and those people shut you out so that you had envy. You wanted to be like them. It's like Tom Sawyer. You remember the, the account from Tom Sawyer when he's whitewashing the fence? He's doing something very undesirable. He's whitewashing a fence. And all the boys come up and they say, Hey, Tom, let's go play. And Tom knows he has to whitewash the fence or he'll be in trouble. So he says, No, I'm, I'm having too much fun. And they say, Well, Tom... You're whitewashing a fence. Hey, this is the most incredible thing in the world, whitewashing a fence. And he goes on and on and on until he finally convinces them that they're missing out on something great because they're not whitewashing the fence. And so finally, they're so eager to whitewash the fence, he trades marbles with them. They have to pay him in, in trinkets to have the privilege of whitewashing the fence. How much fun was Peter having whitewashing the fence? Paul says, would you really compel others to do what you are not doing yourself, what you're not willing to do yourself? And then Paul goes on to verse 15 and he takes on the case of justification in the Jews. He's talked to Peter directly and then he takes on this point of justification. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We were born Jews. We're genetically Jews. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Why wouldn't the Jews let this go? Why wouldn't they let this issue go? There was special privilege, the Bible says, enjoyed by the Jews. As Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. That's a special privilege in and of itself. Romans says, or Paul says in Romans 9, the Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. But Christ had come. And Pentecost had come, and the Holy Spirit had been given. Not just given to Jews at this point, but also to Gentiles. It had been fulfilled. The Messiah had come. And these men believed it. So why wouldn't they let this issue go? Why bother with circumcision and the law? Why bother the Galatians with it? Why bother Titus with it? Why bother the believers at Antioch with it? And if you think it stops there, read Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians because they were bothering everybody with it. Paul gives two direct answers in Galatians in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. He says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. These answers are very straightforward. Paul says they knew that to preach the gospel void of the mosaic trappings would bring persecution on them in the Jewish community, it was constantly bringing persecution on Paul. So he said they preach it because they don't want to be persecuted. And he said they wanted to boast about their converts. They wanted to go amongst their people and boast about their converts. Now these are very direct answers answers to this question, but I think there is an indirect answer as well that Paul gives And it's found in chapter 2 and verse 17. And it's very, very concise. It says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, that is the Jews, if the Jews, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be we ourselves have also been found sinners, the Jews, the very men who had come from Jerusalem, Peter himself, Paul himself. If the Jews could maintain that the law had agency in their justification, they could put some confidence in their role in keeping it. In other words, if the law played some role in procuring their righteousness, they could boast about their works as they performed the works of the law. But if they were to deny that the law had any agency, then they must also admit their complete inability in keeping it. They were found to be sinners, just like the Gentiles, the guys at the other tables at lunch. But in this case, Peter and those men from Jerusalem were playing the hypocrite because they were not recognizing their own sin, their own need for Christ. It was this very refusal that caused Jesus to rebuke the Pharisees. Do you remember when he was talking and he gave the parable about the two sons and the father comes to the two sons and he says, I want you to go to my vineyard and work and the first son says yes I'll go and then he goes and plays Nintendo or whatever that he did never goes to the vineyard and then the second son the father goes to the second son and he says go to my vineyard and the, father, and the son says no I won't go but that son thought about his words and thought about his responsibility to his father and he changed his mind he repented of his words and he went to the vineyard and obeyed and Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he says Uh, He says to them in Matthew 21, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him then. They wouldn't recognize their own sin, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. They knew who they were. So Paul moves from his focus on Peter to a focus on the Jews in general. And then in verse 18, he moves to a focus on the individual and himself in particular. And he said, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. For through the law I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul starts with the Galatians, and then he turns to Jerusalem, and then he turns to Peter and the men who come down from from Jerusalem, and then he turns to himself, but he 's all always building in this process he 's going and going and I think there 's a real crescendo going on, and I think it it displayed paul 's passion If I were going to read that that section starting with where he starts talking to peter if you read it you 'll see that there isn 't any break between where he starts. quits talking to Peter and where he starts talking to the Galatians. I mean, look at it for me and indulge me a second. I want to read it again where he's talking to Peter and he says, I said to Cephas in the presence uh, presence of them all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we, have, that we may be justified by, the works, uh, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law will no flesh be justified. Verse 17, and, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a master of sin? May it never be. Verse 18, But if I, re- if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. Listen to it. Can you feel him building in intensity? For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me on the cross. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians! You can just hear it building in intensity. He moves from Peter and his face being in Peter's face, and then he brings it right back around in the letter, and he's right in the face of the Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Don't you see how absurd this is? Why was Paul so passionate about this? Well, it was certainly the need of the hour. We can say that now as we read it in hindsight. But it says in the first chapter that Paul had been set aside from his mother's womb and specifically, I believe, for the purpose of fighting this battle. His life was this whole argument in miniature. Look at Philippians 3 where he's talking again about fighting against the the Judaizers. And he says, I've... Who am I? Well, I'm Paul. I, I was somebody who could put lots of confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal. A persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law. Found blameless. What does he realize in the context of all of that? He says, I count, them all, I count it all as rubbish. He said, I want to be conformed to Christ in his sufferings and in his death that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had the pedigree. He was a Jew. He was a Jew among Jews. He had the Mosaic righteousness going for him. But Paul, by the grace and mercy of God, understood that there was no comfort for him in a righteousness that came from the law. He says in Romans, uh, Romans 7, verse 7, What shall I say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Paul knew what he was talking about. He had all of the trappings of being, all of, all of the things that those, that emissary from Jerusalem was to the Galatians. He had all of that history and then some. He was the prince of the Jews. He was the prince of the Mosaic Law. But he said, it just it killed me. It killed me. Paul's common theme over and over again was I died to the law so that I might live to God. I died to the law so that I might live to God. And this was the passion that he had that he was trying to save the Galatians from that he was rebuking Peter and the and the Jewish believers for. The passion for the grace of God in Christ Jesus being the only thing that would justify you. He said, if I had gone back to the law, I would have just proven that I was a transgressor of it. Could you imagine Paul going back to the law and seeing that statement about coveting again? He would never be able to go get over it. It would have been an instant proof that he was a transgressor of the law. Well, what is our application? What's our application here at Church of the Good Shepherd for you and for me? Well, we haven't been obviously pressured by a secret delegation from Jerusalem. At least I'm not aware of any. But for us, the temptation is still there if we could maintain that the law had agency in our justification, we could put some confidence in our role in keeping it. If I, could, if I could believe that the law played some role in procuring my righteousness, I could boast a little about what I had done toward my own justification. But if we deny that the law has any agency, in our justification, then we must also admit our complete inability to keep it. We, I, you, are found to be sinners, just like Peter. Just like the people that you may have looked at all your life and referred to as sinners. What law do we think about today? Or what are the potential circumcision issues of our day? Anything I think that we can look at and say externally that we put confidence in. And you can think of the favorites of the last hundred years or a few hundred years. People who say, well, you don't drink, you don't curse, you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't go to movies, you don't eat Big Macs and Whoppers, okay? Those kinds of things, the easy ones that we can look at. But there are some, we've seen denominations, whole denominations of churches built on these uh, restrictions. And people who have put great confidence in not keeping or in, in not doing them. And what about the mass or the confession or the penance? We all know people who put great confidence in these things. Great confidence in their observation of them there are lots of hidden favorites though How about the discipline of children and our submission in our home now I'm not I'm not asking you to say, to, to think about God not wanting us to discipline our children or be submissive to one another I'm just saying do you put confidence in it? I know a religious organization that is built on this very issue, that and not drinking. We have confidence in these things we do in the flesh, our perfect attendance, our homeschooling, our reading of Calvin, the offering that we give, the amount of times we read through the Bible in a year. You can put confidence in the flesh in every sort of action. when it comes to your righteousness, when it comes to your justification before God, if, you are, if you're not dead to all reliance on any of these outward actions, you're in real danger. Real danger. Just like Paul, if you rebuild what you destroyed, you prove yourself to be a transgressor. If righteousness has come to you because you've never smoked a cigarette, then Christ died needlessly. You never needed his sacrifice. Can you imagine any work in our flesh that we could dare compare to the sacrifice that God gave us in Christ Jesus to procure our righteousness? Can you think of anything? Can you imagine on the day, you know, the Bible says that we all have a day. You have a day and I have a day. And it's the day that we stand before God. Can you imagine when standing there and, and in the understanding that we're going to be judged and, and uh, if you'll allow me the liberty of, of letting you imagine that we would actually be able to say something at that moment and the liberty that God would ask us the question that we ask from Evangelism Explosion, is there any reason why I should let you into my heaven? Can you imagine standing there and saying to God, well, I trust Jesus, and I taught three people Calvin's Institutes. Can you imagine standing there and saying, well, I trust Jesus, and I made all my children's clothes. I trust Jesus and I I went to Mass twice, sometimes three times a week. I trust Jesus and I read my Bible every day. I trust Jesus and I attended CGS. How are any of these different from I trust Jesus and I was circumcised? They're no different. Still putting our confidence in the flesh. And the Word says that if we place our trust in ourselves at any point, in our flesh at any point, that we're liable for the whole of the agency. What about that one outfit you bought for your kid? You didn't sew them all. What about that one day you didn't read your Bible? You see how absurd it is? Not to mention the fact that you're comparing it to Christ, to the sacrifice of God in Jesus Christ toward us. Listen. We ourselves have been found to be sinners. We need to throw ourselves on God's mercy and thank Him that he has given us Jesus Christ. This is Paul's gospel. This is the way of the cross, and it must be the way that we take. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks today that you were pleased to take that man, Paul, and make such a foolish-looking example out of him. Just, Lord, constantly, constantly, as he was opposed, he stood strong. But we are more thankful, Father, for the message that he preached, which is greater than him. We're thankful for that message that we cannot be justified in our works. Lord, we're thankful that we are finally free from our sin because of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we're thankful that you give us faith. Father, I pray this morning as we are here, if, if any of us, Father, have, if any of us have been placing hope or confidence in any of the works of our flesh, Lord, that you will reveal it to us. Father, that you will give us the strength to... To cast it off to put it to death, to die to all of that all of that belief that we can somehow make ourselves acceptable and Lord that you will give us trust in Christ that we will know your son and him crucified, that we will be crucified with him that We wouldn't live, but that he would live in us, and the life we live will live to him, to you. We thank you, dear Lord, for your mercy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take your song sheet and turn to Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Please stand here.